0: I'm Dr. Megan Corrado, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Dr.
1: Linda Bills. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, you're welcome. Um, I'm really happy to join you today, and thanks for having me.
0: So let's start off by you telling us about who you are.
1: Okay. So uh, I am a psychiatrist and an internist. Um, That's my background training wise. And I spent uh, some extra time focusing on post-traumatic stress and traumatic stress in my training at at WVU. And I work uh, in Pennsylvania. I work now for community care, behavioral health as a senior medical director, but I've done a lot of different things in in psychiatry and in the mental health field and other things besides that as well. Hmm.
0: Can you tell us a little more about what you do? You mentioned briefly, um, kind of from a bird's eye view, what you do, but is there anything else you want to mention specifically about what you do?
1: Yeah. Yes. I appreciate that. I I would want to also add that I um, really have an interest in in the traumatic stress field, and I have uh, for a long time since, especially since my the earlier years of my training. But uh, I was fortunate to have a lot of influence by some great teachers and mentors, and um, I developed a, a trauma method uh, to help folks with resolving some symptoms from PTSD mm-hmm. um, called Trauma Art Narrative Therapy. So I'm, I feel Uh, positive about that.
0: Mm. How long has trauma art narrative therapy been around?
1: Well, I really kind of formalized it 1993, 1994. Mm, Okay. And you've been doing trainings all over the country, right? Right. I have done trainings all over the country and then some in other countries, Mexico, the UK, uh, South America as well. Hmm.
0: Um, can you share with us a little bit about what, what got your, your intervention started?
1: Well, uh, it would go back to my training years. And, um, the main thing was that, um, actually I would say my training years and just basically how I was brought up. Um, people have asked me this question before and I've thought about it. I was raised as a, as a ranch girl, as a cowgirl, And, uh, on, as part of that upbringing, I spent a lot of time um, with doing work with animals and, and livestock where you, you could spend most of the time in a day and really not speak to the other person. Everybody's working, doing, paying attention to what's going on with nature and animals. And uh, I think that's where my, my interest in the nonverbal uh, mind or the more creative side uh, of human nature developed back then, and then, mm. and then when I was in my training, um, I had the fortune to be exposed to a lot of creative arts in my training, mm. and and people who really thought mentors especially that thought the creative arts and nonverbal approaches were really important to be able to help people heal.
0: Mm. Um, it's really interesting because a lot of interventions today focus on words um and it's it's really amazing to hear about how your intervention is trying to support people in expressing their thoughts, their feelings about trauma without necessarily using language
1: I think yes, I think that's so important because um one of the things that's so basic it, for understanding uh, what happens when somebody's exposed to some horrific stressor or some trauma is that they it's so common that they'll lose the words and there's Mm -hmm. there's a lot of reasons for that and we understand that better than we ever have but in practical ways people have to express it some other in some other way and then add add the words back Mm -hmm.
0: It's just, it's really ironic to me how uh, we know that people who've experienced trauma don't necessarily have access to the language to be able to describe their experiences. But we almost, in, in a lot of treatment protocols, we almost expect them to have the language in order for us to use the intervention with them.
1: I know. I, th- I feel like that's pretty unfair, to be honest. Um. And kind of everything about, like certainly in my world of you know, like a medical model, you know, as a physician to practice, your your everything is designed to expect people to you know tell me what happened, tell me this, tell me that, and mm-hmm. all you know all the buttons we you know now it's all computerized, so you click this, click that, and you're just asking a, a ton of questions uh, for the person that you expect them to respond and. I, I like when I'm teaching the the trauma and neurotherapy. I, I like to try to remind people, you know, a person if you ask them a question, really they're going to try their best to answer it, even if they may have trouble answering it. Mm-hmm. So they're going to try to. So I think if you're tuned into the the uh, idea that the nonverbal mind is ever present, and that somebody won't always have the words for a really bad thing that happened. It's if you ask them a question, okay, but recognize that you probably didn't get the whole story. Mm hmm. Mm.
0: That's a really profound statement that we might not necessarily get the whole story just in words. Right. So we know that every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you faced?
1: Well, I think um, I can think of several that, um, you know, so professionally and personally. So uh, some of the things uh, professionally uh, had to do with, um, I think, uh, I would say mostly around challenges to being able to be creative. Let's put it that way. Like Mm. um, how important it is, you know, like like I said earlier, I had great, I had some fantastic mentors and and colleagues, you know, that really supported me to be able to be creative and and you know push that envelope and and do whatever you know kind of whatever I needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, unfortunately, as you're probably aware, a lot of people are aware that's not always the case. So mm-hmm. when you kind of run up against a kind of wall, some of my adversity prevent- professionally was, for instance. Um, uh when I left my uh residency training, one of my earliest jobs um was in a state hospital system and, and certainly plenty of need and I felt um adequately prepared to face that challenge, so to speak. And mm-hmm. um but I also was really struck by how much uh kind of uh there was just this stuckness of the leadership and and the system not wanting to make things a lot better Mm. and that just really hit me hard like that was a moral hit i think once i uh always tell people um i'm kind of like glass half full type person so i'm sort of uh always looking in the best in the best view and a lot of times not seeing what's the reality sometimes it's pretty pretty horrible
0: Mm.
1: So I didn't, I think my, one of, one of my le- earlier lessons was the reality facing the reality that, gosh, there's people, there are ways to help people. And we have a lot of knowledge now to be able to help people in a, in a good way. Mm-hmm. A lot of opportunities There's so many things. Like when you were talking about the, like all the different modalities we have to help people, whether they can use words or not. I mean, there's a ton of things, right? Um, so sometimes I think the systems are not as flexible as they need to be to allow that to happen. And I, earlier in my career, I took that really hard, like mm-hmm. almost, you know, to the point that it certainly made me really feel terrible, kind of, you know, how can I help this when I knew when I knew you could make a difference. Yeah. You know, if you educated people, you could make a difference, people could could certainly do better. So that those were some kind of early things. And that I've seen that repeatedly. And, and, you know, systems are tough that way. Um, They change slowly. Um, You have to be more patient. And by nature, I'm not a patient person. So that was a handicap early earlier. Um, So that's that's an example of type of type of adversity, really. Um, And then personally, I, you know, I certainly grew up like I had mentioned earlier, I grew up in in a ranching farm family. And plenty of family conflicts, and uh, a lot of things that would be a good a good predictor for why I ended up in the field of psychiatry in the first place mm. uh, within my family. So um, family members with just some pretty um, uh, tough, you know, they weren't able to handle their aggression, and they could be pretty violent. So a lot seeing a lot of the way people would interact in a violent way, and uh, you know. That kind of experience certainly did impact me as well. Mm, so yeah. I think I think that's good to you know I I recognize that and and appreciate how that's influenced the direction and the path I've taken and and it helps me be you know certainly more understanding.
0: Mm. Can you share a few positive moments or turning points in your story?
1: Yes, uh, I'll tell you. So one of my I was thinking about this um, related to using the creative arts. Um, I can remember really pretty clearly where I, I kind of realized, gosh, that those creative arts are so critical to helping somebody, uh, make progress or improve. And, and one of my earliest, uh, memories was in my training experience. So I like to tell people that we were fortunate. Uh, we had an art therapist and in that institution, it was mm-hmm. in, on the inpatient side. Every person who was admitted, a kid that could be kids, adolescents, adults, everybody was given an art therapy assessment. They had, wow. to, they had to draw a picture of a person picking an apple off a tree. Hmm. And that was kind of the standard um, drawing, and they used a certain size of paper. And um, I forgot if they, I don't know if they had to use specific, uh, you know, pencils or crayons or whatever, but. Nevertheless, they had that, and the art therapist uh, went around and collected all those, and and actually, um, that art therapist and his mentor, um, she was an art therapist, pretty well-known art therapist, um, Linda Gant, and she, they developed a scale to assess that drawing, Okay. Mm. So then we did that, and then I remember. So I'm giving you that background, and then I remember uh, one time I was working on the on the inpatient side, and we did do all the you know latest kind of interventions of psychiatry at the times, including ECT. And I remember being in a rounds meeting. And the art therapist was in our rounds, and um, we had my, you know, the, the head psychiatrist, all the different students, you know, of all kinds, social worker and psychologist, just who a whole group of nursing. And I remember the art therapist uh, raised his hand to talk about a particular person that was getting ECT and how they were doing. Mm -hmm. We're we're reviewing it and he he held up the the drawings that he, so he would do the baseline drawing and then he would do that same drawing, especially for everybody getting ECT in between all of their treatments. Okay. So he followed the progress and he said, he goes, I think you better stop doing the ECT because look at these drawings. I'll show you how the person is starting to decline a little bit. Mm -hmm. The ECT is probably making them a little bit worse. So you need to stop, and I the attending psychiatrist who uh, she said, "Oh wow, that's really helpful, and okay, so she told the nurse like no more ECT we're stopping and I thought, you know that that it, that influenced me so greatly because I thought, gosh, you know so i I left that meeting and then certainly I had many experiences like that, but in my training, I took the role of the creative arts as important as if I prescribed a pill, no different. Mm. So that's, I mean, that's kind of like, for me, they were equally valid interventions. I mean, Mm. I don't know how you could really compare them, but if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's
0: so interesting when we think about the medical model and when we think about treatment and we think about systems and managed care and their attitude toward the arts today, um, it just stands in such stark contrast to what you're mentioning, saying that um, the arts are just as valuable as some of the um, as some of the psychopharmaceutical psychopharma- interventions that a psychiatrist might prescribe.
1: I know, so that's that's a, that that's that was one of my like a harsh reality. is what I would call it. You know, when I left, you know, like university training and was out in the quote unquote real world and. And so I realized, oh, my gosh, you know, it was really uh, an effort to get those creative arts uh, for people. Uh, fortunately, I did work with the, Dr. Bloom and the, the Sanctuary Group, and I joined them. And mm-hmm. they also we, we had a lot of similar viewpoints on the importance of the creative arts. And, and Dr. Bloom recognized that as well. So did her whole team. And so we had the fortune of having like, you know, we had art therapy, we had movement therapy, we had psychodrama, all the above. And that's Mm. really, that was really unusual. Even, even years ago, that was unusual to have all that. It sounds like the utopia of treatment. It was, it was awesome. And, Mm. and, you know, for, for us, like, I mean, I have to say like, you know, that just seemed very normal, like that you would have all those options. Um, I brought the trauma and narrative therapy to the mix, and we added other things like myself. I I trained in EMDR, so that could be an option. And then certainly we had all the kind of more standard psychodynamic psychotherapies too, not excluding any of those things. Um, But we knew that for any one person, you couldn't guarantee which modality was going to work the best. Right. So you offered them
0: multiple different options so that they had different things to choose from.
1: Yeah. Mm. That worked the best.
0: Mm. Any other positive moments or turning points that you want to highlight?
1: I think, oh, I, I think I also had some really great, uh, exposure to, uh, social psychiatry, which, you know, you don't often hear that much about it, but, um, Earlier in my um, in my school and in, in med school especially, but I was uh, got exposed early on to social psychiatry and kind of the idea, the importance of understanding how people relate in, in groups. And I had a lot of uh, great experiences with that. And as a student, and was able to be, you know, again a lot of freedom for creativity. Those were those were all positive, and I've had many positive experiences uh, doing my trauma art and narrative therapy, doing the training, and and you know learning from people as they try things and use things. Those are those are all really positive. So I, I feel positive about all the resources out there.
0: Mm. So where do you see yourself in the future? What's your future vision?
1: Well, my future vision is. Uh, professionally, to continue uh, emphasizing um, the importance of of options with traumatic stress treatment, I certainly try to do that in my current um, job, and then I like to emphasize that with the trauma or narrative therapy training as well. But I really think it's important to continue to educate people about how you need, you know, you need the verbal but you really need the nonverbal. So trying to continue to focus that on that. And I also think it's really important to keep bringing people back to the body side. Um, That was the other part of my training background. I mean, I got uh, really interested in in trauma really related to the body effects I saw. Mm. I saw a lot of body, the, the impact of trauma on the body. And I saw that growing up as well. And then I saw it in my in my training. So that made me really interested in how, again, that nonverbal world could come out very literally with a body symptom or a, a specific pain somewhere in the body that somebody was struggling with, and it really would be related to their trauma. So I, mm. that's like, for me professionally, that's been another way that I've really been attracted to trying to help people because... That's a really challenging area of of the traumatic stress world right um, and then that
0: also feeds into um, the difficulty verbalizing trauma memories too how some of our trauma memories are like so deeply um, rooted in the body
1: that they're also difficult for us to express with words. that's right. so I think again, you really have to have the nonverbal means, but, Besides that, you have to actually have people that take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the, on the professional side or the caregiver side, the healers um, have to, to really believe that that's possible. That's how somebody can, can express their trauma. And because for the person who has that problem, or maybe it's not really, that's problem's not the best word, but the person who's having the challenge of expressing themselves and this is just where they are. If if they're in that state and nobody's really taken that seriously, that makes it doubly hard or more. Right, right.
0: And then it also requires the therapist or the clinician to um, be confident in their own skills, in their own ability, and in the client's expertise over their own experiences, because it can feel very anxiety provoking um, to be working with someone on trauma without any words.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, I think that's one of that's like one of the things I try to do with with my training is I try to I try to validate that that that's a reality and it's pretty hard, you know, especially people uh, maybe earlier in their career, but not just earlier in their career at any point. They can really be kind of really uncomfortable with that space of the nonverbal world and what somebody what might come out and. And once people get used to it, I think it's not so bad. But I really feel like part of the reason why that's even a problem is people aren't exposed to it in in school. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the more they can be exposed to it in school, the less that would be an issue.
0: Right. I think, too, as, as I'm thinking about um, some of the very enthusiastic, excited um, master students that I have um, educated in social work, um, they, they're really excited to be able to use all these different tricks and strategies. Um, but then it's more uncomfortable for them to be able to sit with the silence and to recognize that even when no words are being spoken, all types of things are still being communicated to them in the session.
1: Right. Yeah. I think, I think that thing about silence is really tough on people on, on, uh, clinicians. I think that's really hard. I mean, I, I'm, I have a little bit of a smirk on my face, which is not very nice, but um, I, I know that's true. And I think, I think that's a skill to develop. So like mm-hmm. you know, when I was saying earlier, like I spent uh, like what's the image in my mind is that I, I spent hours, um, hours on horseback, actually, even when I was as little as, as six years old. Uh, with one uncle in particular who we could be out on horseback, even when I was that little for, you know, five, six hours in a day easy. Mm. And maybe not one, maybe one or two words spoken the whole time. Wow, even at six years old. Oh, yeah, at six years old, because that's just was the way he was. and, And he was all about work. And there was work to do. Mm-hmm. So you don't really talk like he he was a man of few words and it was you had to be learn to be very observant. So I had to learn to observe what, you know, I I I was kind of afraid of him because he was, you know, he was an old guy and he kind of scared me. He was a little little daunting. Um mm-hmm. but I I was res- I respected him. I had a lot of respect for him. I really liked him. So, but I wanted to know. I kind of wanted to know uh, what he was thinking without asking him. Mm. So I started. I started picking up things that he would do. His repeated things that that he might do. or I was. I was looking at the nonverbal communication. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting um, to think about how that evolved throughout the course of your life experiences and through your professional training into an intervention that focuses a lot on the nonverbal.
1: Right, I think it's so important. Mm-hmm.
0: Are there any favorite or life changing resources that you want to share with listeners?
1: Well, I think that I would encourage people. There's there are so many good information out there, and certainly easily accessible for anybody using the internet. So that's, that's also great. But um, I think it's important to uh, become more and more educated about the nonverbal world. And that we have some really good teachers on that topic. So I'll include people, for instance, um, Bruce Perry comes to mind. Um, and he's easy to research on, on the internet. Bessel van der Kolk, um, the body keeps the score, which he had a book, but an earlier article, I still think that's a really good thing to read. Um, there's another, um, professional, his name's uh, Bob scare. And I actually spoke to him not too long ago. He is a neurologist by training, but he wrote a book called the body bears the burden. Hmm. And he's, he's really was, has been somebody who's focused on the impact of trauma on the body and he's written a lot about it. So he's a good, a good reference to, to look up. And the other, the other thing that's kind of interesting, uh, the work by James Pennybaker comes to mind, who is a a researcher who now we, we were talking about the nonverbal, but he's researched journal writing as a nonverbal expression. Huh? And how healing that is. In fact, he's, he's studied it extensively. So that's actually, writing in a journal without talking is also a nonverbal um, way to express yourself. So for those people who get worried about thinking that they're going to have to be creative if they don't feel like they have the skills. And we know, mm-hmm. that, and we know that you can have the skills even if you don't think you do. Mm-hmm. So. So those and, are, there there are many others but that's just some that come to mind.
0: Okay. And for those who are interested in learning more about your work with trauma art narrative therapy, where should they start?
1: Well, they can go to uh learntraumaart.com uh www.learntraumaart.com and they can get some information there and my contact information is e- easily available there. Email okay, uh, any any way they'd want to reach me is right there. Great.
0: Is there anything else that you
1: want to share with our audience? Uh, I'm very happy to have people uh, interested in in this topic. And I really appreciate your wanting to highlight um, this, the creative world and how important it is to helping people with with severe stress. It it can't be emphasized enough. So I I really appreciate you doing it.
0: Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corrado, and my work with the Stories Trauma Narrative Intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my Stories social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there is always a story of strength and resilience.